All right. Welcome now. <laughs> <laughs> I have been away for a couple of weeks, so we have a lot of catching up to do, seeing as I've been on holiday. But uh, you know what? Why don't, we, why don't we start with, what have you been doing while I've been enjoying my holiday? What have you been up to? Well, I have been working a lot, um, mostly on GUI, um, which is a, a graphical user interface library I've been working on. Um, it is uh, still very much in... Uh, alpha pre-alpha i don't know prototype stage <laughs> um, it's a the the reworking of of a previous version of what i've done in a reactive model and uh this past two weeks i've been working on the uh a way to run the applications natively using wgpu and WinIt, um and that included rewriting my existing 2d graphics library as well as uh kind of just taking a a step back and analyzing what that graphics library's goals were. Um, so done a lot of stuff, have a lot of cool stuff to show off to you um, as you get closer to finishing up your TUI, which despite you saying you've been on vacation, I know you've put a decent amount of work in on these things. So what all have you been working on? Well, I don't do vacation very well, clearly, because I have indeed been working on on a lot of things. Uh, one of the things, one of the, one of the highlights of my holiday, and I think most people who go on holiday uh, who experienced this will agree is the removal of lifetimes, right? I thought that was. I think this is a commonality. You 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 go somewhere nice and warm, and then you remove a lifetime in your code. Like this is standard <laughs> standard programming procedures. So I I managed to remove a lifetime, and subsequently, because I, I want to introduce a little bit of like multi-threading support for these things, so I ended up wrapping a as a slice in an arc instead. So not only did I get the benefit of multi-threading, but I also managed to get rid of, of, of a lifetime. And that feels like feels a little bit like a small victory when you can remove a lifetime because you're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it for everyone who's going to use your library and everyone's going to implement your trades. If you can remove a lifetime, that is some kind of win in my book, right? I don't, I don't, I don't know why. I mean, lifetimes aren't dangerous last time I checked, but for some reason, they are this kind of thing that we sort of try to avoid a little bit in the Rust world, excessively at least at that, right? Because they permeate, right? They permeate and they sort of yeah. spread uh, everywhere, right? So. I've been fighting this exact same challenge a little bit with the and rewrite. Um, so the WGPU offers several different types you need to pass around. Um, and specifically, when you create a render pass, um, everything you render during that render pass gets bound to the lifetime of the render pass, which puts a lot of restrictions on what you can do when you're actually doing the rendering phase in WGPU because you can't be mutating your data and then send it across. Uh, well, in some cases you can, but it's very limited in situations you can actually do that um, because sometimes you're in a loop, for example, and you can't do the mutability and have shared references at the same time. And every time you actually send it to WGPU, it's going to annotate, you know, or it's going to extend the lifetime of the pass to include whatever you're passing into the render pass. Um, so when I get to, got to writing this uh, GUI abstraction so that in theory, people don't have to use collagen with GUI. They can use whatever backend they want. Um, they just have to implement a specific uh, renderer trait. Um, I, I tried to genericize this and collagen's graphics type had all these life, lifetimes on it, two of them technically. Um, and the usage of it, to support the uh, clipping using a guard so that uh, you can clip to a specific region of the of the window and then once you drop the guard the the um 
the clipping is restored, uh, that introduces a third lifetime. And then I needed to do this across associated uh, types, um, a, a generic associated types, uh, which I like to call gals, generic associated lifetimes. Uh, and I ran into the fir- uh, first uh, for me this, this time for after working in Rust for, what, four or five years now? Um, the compiler told me uh, that I had an error in my code, and it was not going to be a limitation in the future. <laughs> that was a first oh, really? for me. Oh, that's yeah. nice. I'll I'll link to the particular compiler issue. Yeah, we we prom we pro- compiler says we promise everything's going to be okay, but for now you can't do it, right? Yep, exactly. So I had to <laughs> completely refactor things. I spent literally four or five days fighting lifetimes this past. Uh, I guess it was technically last week, but yeah, it's a uh, oh, you, fun you times. Know what? If you would have just gone on a holiday, this would have possibly resolved itself, right? Because that's yeah, that's I might be able to get rid well, of lifetimes. <laughs> go to, go somewhere else and remove a lifetime. This is like, this is this is how it works, right? Okay, well, so so yeah, yeah. Sorry, do continue. That was pretty much it. Uh, you know, it's uh, I, I I wanted to get rid of lifetimes, and in the end, I did. But instead of using an arc, because I couldn't really, because uh, uh, you need like static lifetimes for for stuff to get stored into an arc and stuff like that. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, I uh, erased the lifetimes by using a dying trait um, object. Uh, so I, I I forced. I forced the renderer trait into being object safe by uh, changing its API bit, and that kind of eliminated most of the issues. And now I have a dying renderer being passed around, which means that yeah, there's the overhead of virtual method calling, virtual function dispatch, um, but it shouldn't be a big deal, really. I mean, as long as you do it sort of once now and then, uh, it, it should be fine. Generally, when we're talking about game programming and game development uh there is always this kind of you know don't allocate a lot don't do this uh, you know don't do that but um you obviously you're allowed to allocate right there's the the rust police will not get you for allocating you you can allocate just don't do it frequently and i'm sure the same thing is applicable to dine any as a matter of fact i actually do have a lot of dine any in my code as well there's no other way that you can store, you know, traits implementations for different types, unless you you're gonna have a dyne widget, then right, and and eventually or a massive enum, which limits to a specific list of types, right? You know, but yeah, it's one or the other, essentially. That's <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and 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 the, the enum, the thing is, the enum is often overlooked in conversations I have when we talk about these things, right? But the, the fact is that it limits you to your library. You can't really have anyone mm-hmm. else implementing new types. But if you don't need that, then the enum is actually perfectly fine to use, right? I think it's a, it's a good, good enough solution, right? So yeah, uh, I did a little bit of testing on, or write, write some, some more test tools as I was uh, on holiday. And um, one of the things that I thought about for a while when I was doing this is, should I have a testing configuration, right? So we can expose testing features so other people can write tests against uh, and, and use the same sort of testing um, scaffolding and helpers, right? Given the feature flag. And I was wondering, do you do, you do this? Do you have like a feature yes. flag for testing? You do, okay. Well, it depends. Um, I don't do it for end users being able to write tests better, usually. Um, uh, that's sometimes just a side effect of how I designed the API in the first place. Um, but the testing feature flag comes up in multi-crate projects where um, I might have like a crate that I label core or something like that. You know, like it's, a, it's the, the, the types that are shared between a bunch of different crates in the overall workspace. Um, and that particular crate may have some functionality that's completely generic that allows testing 
functionality in the other crates. So, for example, to give a concrete example, uh, Bonsai DB uh, Core has a feature flag for testing. I think it's called Test Util, um, and it exposes uh, a module that purely has a bunch of testing helpers. Uh, and why does this help me in Bonsai? Well, that this, that defines a test suite that is completely generic that tests nearly every API over a database connection. And in Bonsai, a database connection can be a local database, it could be a local server that's running in a hosted mode, or it can be a remote database over a client. And so this test suite doesn't care what connection it actually has. It just tests things completely generically over any connection. And so I export those test utilities once from the core library, and I can instantiate them as, you know, using a macro essentially um, in each of the different crates that implements its own form of database connections. Um, and there, there, therefore, I know that my entire suite of these tests are running across all the different connection types I have. So that's the type of situation that I find this sort of thing useful. But uh, I also uh, use that in GUI a little bit too. So... Um, uh, so uh, over the past couple of weeks, we have gotten a couple of emails. And uh, one of the questions that I got was from Ken B. Um, he complimented us on our podcast setup that sounded quite nice, which oh, I'm nice. very happy with. Thank you. Thank you, uh, But Ken. he also was curious what our, our podcasting setup was. Um, so I don't know if we want to get into very specifics about model numbers and stuff. In fact, I can't because I'd have to reposition my mic to even tell you what kind of mic it is. Um, but it's an Audio-Technica mic. I've got it on a boom. And I've got it plugged into uh, this thing called uh, – uh, well, actually, don't know what it's called but it's a knockoff version of something called a cloud lifter which basically just tries to isolate voice frequencies but it's kind of a black box literally a black box of sorts that you plug your mic into before it goes into your you know uh, what, whatever this thing is that uh, the DAC that converts uh, my microphone into a digital signal. Um, and then we record into Audacity. Uh, both of us record our independent streams and then I merge it together. I use a, a phantom utility that doesn't exist but does exist uh, by a company that doesn't seem to publish anymore called Levelator. It's a Mac OS only feature. Uh, 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 application that uh, all it does is it uses some proprietary algorithm to level multiple audio tracks um, in such a way that uh, voices sound you know like they're recorded on the same mic almost um, obviously there's different tone and stuff like that but the actual uh, volume is is roughly the same and then uh, I let toggle take a pass at editing while I uh, do some show notes and I release it so um, that's kind of the the overall process in my setup what's uh what's your hardware look like uh, well, hardware wise I am talking into a procaster using a roadcaster pro to audio interface that I uh, I record onto this thing as well as Audacity. Um, I did this because one of our episodes that we recorded, I accidentally used, by, by accident, of course, um, I used my webcam as the audio source. So they, we recorded a, an episode that no one will ever hear because my voice was coming from from a webcam. And uh, and, the, and when I recorded onto the device, I accidentally recorded the mix. So I got uh, Acton's voice mixed in with mine before we leveled everything so it was it was a hot mess um but yes that, so the that part wasn't using... the worst part though the, the 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 reason why we ditched that was purely because that mix included discord notifications too so we've, we've <laughs> tweaked a lot of processes ever since then we remember to put ourselves in do not disturb and a bunch of this stuff you know just to try to make sure that we don't have these things that we've learned about over the, the, the time of doing we, the podcast we are now seasoned professionals right um exactly but, uh, but yes I, I do 
I do have I have the Roadcaster Pro, which is which is actually a Linux computer running uh, a bunch of uh, proprietary software from Rode. Um, it's generally pretty good. Uh, I use this because I do streaming as well, and uh, and it allows me to read my audio desktop through this thing and apply various volumes and and such on there. Right. So so yeah, that's uh, that's my setup as well. Uh, before this, I used to use a HyperX Quadcast microphone for streaming, and I thought that was pretty good. Um, so if you're on a very limited budget, that one is certainly something that would do in a pinch. If, if this microphone ever gives up or the audio interface, then I would just swap back. And the only reason why I'm using my very specific mic is because I have a really loud uh, HVAC system right outside the door here. And it's so loud that I, when I moved into this house, I fought background noise issues so that I was like constantly hot miking because of just background noise, um, despite some of the great tools out there like Crisp and Noise Torch and stuff like that. And so I looked for a very directional mic and eventually I got on this combo and it mostly eliminates the need for worrying about the background noise now. One of the things that I also have in my setup is a pop filter, but I just realized now that my pop filter is on the other side of the room. And if I try to get up and go there now, there's going to be a lot of loud noises from my, my chair. <laughs> so, so there is the end, but our editing workflow is actually quite, quite simple. If we don't spend too much time on it because of the time difference, I'm usually half asleep by the time. Uh, we sort of I, I get to my editing part, right? So, so we 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 level the the the, the, the voices or act and levels the voices, sends it to me, and then I kind of just create an intro and an outro um, rather quickly by just grabbing some piece of the podcast, which where usually where I sound stupid or or something else that's moderately funny, and and then that, that, that's that's basically what we do. There's very little editing involved in this thing. We're trying to keep this as simple as possible, right? Um, just because yeah. um, this and there's like to to go even more meta about this, we basically have no planning, right? We we sit down. Sometimes we talk a little bit before the episode. Um, th- today we've had, uh, I think about 30 seconds where I was, uh, telling Acton about my terrible dinner and, and, and then we, we started the, 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 the recording, right? So, so we keep it. Technically very simple, right? you, you didn't tell me about your terrible dinner because my whole, my whole thing that I said was I interrupted you and said, maybe we should just start recording because we haven't chatted in three oh, weeks yeah, now right. almost. <laughs> and, and so I realized that we were, I was looking down my list of notes that we did have because you're right. We, we, we barely prepare. We have, uh, we open up an issue on a private, uh, uh, GitHub project that, uh, for each episode and just put notes in as we think of them. And we have a, a handful of notes. That's where the question got put and stuff like that. But we're already kind of running a little slim here. So we're about to switch into discussion topics. And thankfully you just reminded me that I haven't heard about your, your, uh, pressure cooker dinner experience. So yeah. Today, today has been a, a, a complete train wreck, uh, time management-wise. I started, I started the day with a stream. I was very excited about some scoping. Uh, I had to cut the stream short because I had a meeting or I had a call with a friend. And then immediately after that call, I had a call with uh, a guy named Christoph who works on the SIG programming language. He, he and I were, were chatting a lot on, on Discord about, about audio. He, he's a lot more knowledgeable than I am. So he gave me a bunch of pointers about various audio setups. We talked about that. We talked about SIG for a long time and then straight on to, to doing the podcast. But I was going to have dinner in between and, um, 
so I go upstairs, I see the pressure cooker and it says 12 minutes. And I thought, okay, that's great. There's 12 minutes left of, of the food. That was an, an incorrect reading. It turns out that it has been sitting there for 12 minutes, warming the food already. So by the time we, I sat there for a while thinking, hang on, 12 minutes must be up by now. When I looked at the pressure cooker, and so it's been sitting there cooking chicken for 40 minutes, right? And, and then it's, uh, it was, uh, I didn't even touch the chicken. I was like, okay, listen, this is a, this is a complete nightmare. I can't, whatever, whatever this chicken is now is no longer chicken, right? It's going to be some dry, whatever, right? So I just, I just. Not necessarily. Is it, is it darker or light meat? Well, chicken would be, be a light meat, right? So it, it could. It could, it oh, was no, no. Chi- so chicken thighs um, it, it are like incredibly difficult to actually overcook because just like you end up just kind of breaking it down. It just gets kind of moister and moister. Eventually it'll, it'll dry out, but like chicken thighs, you can just throw in the oven 450 for like an hour, hour and a half, and they'll just get softer and more fall apart. And eventually they'll dry out. Um, but yeah, the chicken breast dries out like yeah, that, the moment this you was get it the done. Chicken fillets, the, the, the thing oh, yeah. that basically starts out dry, if you do just a little bit wrong with them, right? So, so personally, I prefer to to uh, as a healthy individual, I prefer to put these on a smoker. But uh, you know, apparently, that's not <laughs> welcome to cooking online. No. All right, but the, so, so so this whole thing is just so I just sat there waiting for I don't know, like forty minutes or whatever, to not eat the food, and then of course I had to eat something because I've, I've only had breakfast day, so so I just had to quickly eat some some dry bread. It's all a very dry sort of thematic food here right so the theme is dry right um so yeah so that was that was the that was the terrible thing uh with with the, it was not terrible but it's not the food bit of a food malfunction thing happening over there right uh, but it's been a very very busy day um and and, and the, you know what that, that that reminds me right so i started working on scopes today and i am working on the second version of uh, of a solution so so i'm very close to finishing my library i'm very excited about this i got loads done uh while i was on on holiday not just lifetimes i sold basically most of the things i sold like includes and views and, and the whole thing um very excited to to sort of get to finish this thing but i thought i can do a little bit better on performance right now this this i think there's like a magical unicorn of performance that we can chase till the day we die uh at some point you kind of have to say look it's good enough just just put it down and let someone else break it for a while right and i'm I'm almost there i just have two different solutions to rebuilding i want to do a partial rebuild of the widget tree and the first solution I did sort of involved uh, going through the entire layout process, but if but caching the node. So if the node already exists, we reuse that. If it doesn't exist, then we uh, or, or something has changed, then we rebuild the node. This is problematic when it comes to collections, right? Because collections don't necessarily work in in terms of a node has changed or a widget has changed, but rather a widget has been removed or added, which brings like a different different form of change with it, right? So the other experiment I'm doing now, and I'm slowly realizing that I am basically copying your implementation. You said a while ago, <laughs> why don't you use slot map? And, uh, and, and in, my, in, in my hubris, I was like, I don't need your third party. <laughs> I'm kidding. But I, I, didn't, uh, I thought, you know what, we'll, we'll be fine, right? We'll, we'll, we don't need all of that. We're just going to put a little bit of a VEC over here. And today I was, I was implementing 
uh, references and references have generations and I'll sit in there and I looked into the camera and I said, Hector, if you're here, okay, <laughs> you don't have to say I told you so, right? So because, but the thing is, because I use two use sizes, because this, this is a hack at this point. I use two use sizes, one for the index and one for the generation. And I know that you only use one and you bit mm-hmm. shift to 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 have the generation in there or not right now and i felt i felt that if you're watching this you're definitely shaking your head as you can see this thing right no no because uh one of the reasons why my slot map crate uh exists which is called a lot um is uh that the some of the other slot map crates out there especially the ones that don't use any unsafe actually do use two use sizes and to me um having every entry's id be 16 bytes and instead of eight bytes seemed excessive. And so I decided that's one of the reasons why my crate exists. No unsafe, but it also only uses a single use size, uh, regardless of whether you're 32 or 64 bit. Um, and it stuffs uh, the generation in the top uh, uh, quarter of the space. Um, and that, you know, obviously the number of bits changes based on how big use size is. Um, so that's just an arbitrary decision that I decided, you know, made it a, a, an interesting library uh, compared to some of the existing ones out there. But two use sizes totally a perfectly fine approach um, and you're going to run into less issues where you might have an existing ID uh, that you try to pull and it actually returns you something even though it's not actually the same one because with limited generations I can't like you'll eventually you'll wrap a lot quicker than if you had a U size that you were using as the counter so um, for those who aren't super aware of a slot map type data structure. Uh, what, what is a generation? A generation is any time you update one of these slots, um, a counter gets incremented. And that's called that slot's generation. Um, and so when you go and take one of these slot IDs, it has the generation stored in it as well as the index inside of the, the collection. And so when you go and compare uh, and try to look up the value based on that ID, you're able to compare if the generation is still the same. If not, you know that that's a stale ID. It was handed out for a previous object that used to be stored in that spot. So you can safely return none and have these like stale IDs out there in the ecosystem or in your architecture that you don't have to worry about because you know you're going to get none back in the future. With my limited generational space, you might actually wrap and you might end up getting a result back occasionally. And so you have to be careful with stale references. With two use sizes, you don't have to worry about that nearly as much. I mean, 64-bit use size, you're never going to wrap. I can say that with almost 100% confidence. That would be, uh, I think that, that's, uh, that's pr- pretty much um, true, right? Uh, I, I think I have a little bit of a different take on this uh, because I am doing things a little bit um, in, in a sort of a test environment, right? I'm, I'm or an experimental environment. Um, so, so instead of doing what I did before, where I kind of go through and build up all these scopes and then produce the, the, the reproduce the widget if it has changed. So this, uh, it, it's sort of a, a eyeballing, uh, the, the, the metrics, the, the render time. So what I have, um, because I'm going to explain a little bit what I'm doing, right? I have this meta information available. So for every render pass or every every frame, um, I know how much time has passed, how much time it took to do the layout, how much time it took to do the painting and the positioning and all these things, right? And these aren't very accurate measurements, right? If you are looking at these numbers and you are um, doing something else in the background with your computer, they're going to take a, a, a serious beating. They're going to change a lot, right? So uh, these things are just, this is sort of like eyeballing uh, what you're looking for. So when I'm trying something out, if I can see a 50% change, then I accept that. If I see a 10% 10 change, then I dismiss that, right? 
And this is just because I like to observe this. Uh, I do this live on stream as well. So running benchmarks isn't really as exciting. And, uh, and I already have sort of this, this setup. And I want to make this available for anyone else who wants to, to see this kind of meta information. It counts the number of widgets in the tree and, and all these things, right? So I managed to go from 700 microseconds for about 1,100 widgets per frame to 250, 300, right? And, and that sounds pretty good. But um, but it's of course a little bit of a lie because I didn't finish the implementations. We didn't do with deal with list, right? Um, so I thought about this, right? What if we do um, what you've done, right? We have this, uh, we have like an, an index of uh, all the values, a flat structure of values, even for vectors, right? Now they're not they're not flat in the same in the sense of contiguous memory, right? Because you can't put a vector and all its content next to something else of undeterminate size in a vector, right? It doesn't work, but uh, a vector can be, instead of being a list of value, it can be a list of references to values, right? So, so a couple of things that are different from, from what you're uh, explaining. is the, One of the things, um, a generation doesn't mean that something has changed. A generation means that something has been replaced. So this is a little bit, yes. a little bit different, right? Uh, because you can pull out a value and modify it, and that should in turn just tell the widget that something that it depends on has changed. Whereas if you remove the value, you are telling a collection or, or the widget that has been gone, right? Or you're telling a collection that, that the, the widget is, that was generated as a result of this value should now be taken out of the tree, right? So I'm, I'm possibly abusing generation or the terminology a little bit here. I'm not entirely no, no, sure. No, no, no. Your, your definition was actually more accurate than mine. Um, I, I, I misspoke a little bit. It's not when you change a value. Um, it's when you insert a new value, which may overwrite an existing slot that has had its data removed from it. That's where the generation gets updated is in that situation. If you're oh. inserting into a brand new slot that's never been touched, it just gets the initial generation, whatever that is, probably zero or one. Or yeah, like I'm using zero for mine. Hang on, are you not using zero? Are you using something else? I use a non-zero use size, um, specific, specifically to make it so that lot ID, when you wrap it in options, stays a single use size. Oh, really? I see. Actually, I'm not 100% sure that that's true. I, I use non-zero use size in some ID type somewhere, and I'm pretty sure it's there. <laughs> but, but if I go so look this at... Is, um, this is the niche, niche um, optimizations, right? You're, you're absolutely right. I didn't even think about this. An option of a non-zero use size is allowed to use the zero value to represent none, and uh, and any other value to be some followed by the value. So you're absolutely exactly. right when it comes to the two. So I think that I use an initial version, uh, sorry, initial generation of one to enforce that even slot zero is non-zero. So then zero is not a valid generation in my um, in my crate, I believe. Technically, that would be undefined behavior to have zero um, to to insert zero as a non-zero value. So yeah, I can I can right. see that right. Um, yeah, speaking of undefined behavior, I've been spending a few days playing around with that as well to see if I could uh, make uh, the API a little bit nicer. Uh, and I just kept running into undefined behavior. It is really really difficult to to do this. I wanted to have this behave like almost like a um, mutex behaves in other languages where the, so in Rust um, a mutex guard will will allow you access to the thing that is guarding right the, the thing that is locked by the mutex in a lot of languages the mutex is something you lock and then you access values after it has nothing to do with the mutex and then you unlock the mutex um, and normally that's not that, that's a little bit more 
um, risky, right? Because you can forget to lock the mutex and you can forget to unlock the mutex. There's a lot of things that can go wrong because you have to manually do it, right? Um, in, my, in my case, I had a very clear loop where we have a section that is mutable and then the lock stop to exist, or this is our read or write lock. So we read, oh, sorry, we write, and then that stops, and then we read, and the read is attached to the uh, layout context. So you, so it exists for as long as you're doing layout. So I was hoping I could make this sort of transparent thing work. I got it working, but only in a single thread environment. And by doing so, I also had to pre-allocate the storage and it wasn't allowed to change because if the storage changes, if you change a vector, if you insert into a vector that has no more capacity, it will take, uh, it will find some, some more capacity somewhere else. And because all the memory has to be contiguous, it will take everything in the vector and move it somewhere else. And those, you might invalidate pointers, even if you use boxes in there. And this is what I thought it was going to be clever. I thought, okay, we'll, we'll put a box. So the value, the box can move, but the pointer to value can never move. Alas, um, this was also undefined behavior by the time I was done with it. So I just scrapped the whole idea. I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, led me down the garden path of stacked borrows, which I was trying to understand, completely missing the first line of the document saying that this is implemented for Mary. And I was trying to figure out where, how do we observe stacked Stack borrows in Rust until um, some very very smart person in my community said uh, that's that's not in Rust that that doesn't exist in Rust. That's it. That's, you're, so I was on a wild goose chase with that, but it was really fun. It was really fun to do and, and explore these things. Right? Yeah. No. It's it's really interesting because like Miri models uh, tries to model the uh, borrow algorithm, but the Rust compiler doesn't have any way to check that you're violating its constraints that it has on on the aliasing for for this type of stuff and so when you use unsafe code uh miri is like trying to add a check that the rust compiler just doesn't do at all and mm. so uh yeah it's it's kind of fun thinking about it that way that technically stacked borrows is a valid way to uh uh, interpret what the compiler's uh, rules are, but it's not actually defined by the compiler other than the compiler's algorithm does something that matches this model, right? Um, there's another one that, uh, another model that people were talking about within the last couple of months. Um, I'll try to dig it up and put it, put it in the show notes. Um, that's a, another way to look at how borrows, uh, stack or overlap um and i don't remember what the term was that this other algorithm that they're looking into using um was called interesting yeah i would love to see that because i have uh, i have spent uh, i spent uh, probably about half a day messing around with this stuff trying to understand how this looked uh, looked like with the every pointer having a stack attached to it with uh, either unique or shared and, and it could be frozen. And, and I was getting really into this only to find out that, <laughs> well, this has nothing to do with reality. So uh, you might as well not. Right? Yeah. I, I'm kind of curious. So like uh, one of the things that I threw out at one point when you were looking at this stuff on stream or somewhere, I don't remember was uh, that parking lots, RW lock has an upgradable version that allows you to uh, say, upgrade read or something like that, um, which uh, gives you back a special type of read guard that has an extra function on it called upgrade that allows you to transform the read guard into a write guard. And I was just sitting here thinking, it'd be kind of cool if the same concept of downgrading a write guard to a read guard existed. Um, and I realized that fundamentally how RW locks work under the hood, 
that there is some reasons why that's tricky um, because of uh, of the like even how the upgrade process uh, is is able to be proved to be uh, doable or whatever is is kind of tricky. Um, but that's a really interesting concept. I wonder why that doesn't exist, or if it's just something that people don't actually need as much as you know they think they do. Because obviously you can drop and re relock, you know, as a read, right? Drop the right, lock the read, and now you've simulated the operation I just um, you know. Uh, proposed, but the in theory, because you have an exclusive right guard, you should be able to drop to a read status uh, without any extra locks. Uh, you're just releasing the exclusive right status. So I'd be curious to see if any any mutex or sorry RW lock libraries out there support that concept, um, or if anyone knows why they don't support it. Yeah, I am. Um, I think the whole thing with synchronization primitives is is quite fascinating. I dug around a little bit in in Mara Boss's book, uh, Rust Locks and Atomics. Mm. Hopefully, I didn't get that wrong. Um, I was looking for various things that I could use to sort of um, circumvent this thing, and all all in the interest of getting a nicer API. In the end, I settled for attaching the read lock to the context, which is which is what it would always be, right? But in this case, um, this is only applicable to when you are doing value access inside a widget during the layout stage. To it, I thought, this is probably quite all right if we just do it here. And I'll accept that. I mean, it's always nice to build the best API we can. But at some point, you can't really risk sacrificing security for a nicer API or, you know, no. somewhat nicer. It's not like it, the API, this is not sort of Mona Lisa versus what I got on my fridge, right? This is not that. It's just very different, right? Or, or rather a little bit. It's just one more um, a function call to access a value rather than just trying to dereference the value directly because we have to pass in the reader, write a lock for the value access. Otherwise, the lifetime won't match up anymore. Um, anymore, right? So, um, so yeah, that's it, right? So I am working on this thing, and I'm trying to build this with a flat structure now, so I can have all the um, all the, uh, the the value access, and I don't have to go through the process of building up the scopes. So the next thing I'm gonna try is attaching the scope to a node collection, right? So when we are looking at adding another item to a list, we already have the scope that is produced. And when I say scope, I mean, imagine that you have a nested for loop, right? Then you're going to have um, a variable binding or two that is coming from the for loop itself, right? That doesn't exist in the global scope. And we have to be aware of these variables inside the collections when we do this thing, right? But since value references are now just indices, this just means attaching a vector to something that is um, not changing all the time, right? It's just going to be um, sort of named or rather pointers to paths, pointers to, to values. This is all probably way too messy to try to describe on a podcast. But um, anyway, so I pushed a bunch of buttons and things seem to be working. So I'm very excited about <laughs> doing that. Right? So yeah, yeah. So exciting. We had a question. Uh, and also, thank you very much for, 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 for that. Right. So do we have any more questions? Anything else? Uh, no, not that I saw, although I honestly haven't checked my spam filter for the last few days, so there's possible possible question there. Um, I know you were soliciting questions on uh, on your, your stream. Did you end up having any uh, interesting questions come up there? 
I don't think so, because I asked everyone to go onto the Discord, but um, I think maybe, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know, maybe people are shy. Maybe you, if you're listening to this and you're feeling shy, you don't have to leave your name. You can just say, I have a question, but please don't mm-hmm. mention me by name, right? Because I'm, I'm worried. Yes, we'll honor that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And if you feel like you're worried that your question is, is you know, maybe you're, uh, maybe you're coming from Python Anonymous and you're wondering if you, you should make the move over to Rust. And, but you don't want to out yourself in case your boss finds out, right? So you're, you can safely ask anonymous questions on, 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 our, on our Discord or on the GitHub issues or specify that you want to be anonymous. And, and since uh, we actually got an email at one point asking us where our Discord was, uh, I do need to make uh, – you, you had pointed this out the other day too. Um, it's not super easy to notice where these URLs to the Discord, to the GitHub discussions, um, or even our email addresses. So I will say them very quickly. Uh, Discord.wayofthecrab.com is a, a domain that you can type in your browser that will redirect you to our, uh, to our Discord server. Um, there is a podcast at wayofthecrab.com that you can email us at. Um, and then uh, I'm not going to try to say the GitHub URL, but uh, every <laughs> week at the bottom of the show notes, so if you were to go to wayofthecrab.com and click on any of the episodes, at the very bottom, these URLs are, are all there. Um, but I need to have a more prominent spot on the website to actually place those URLs so that they're easier to discover for people who hear about Discord, and I don't actually mention the full domain on the podcast, <laughs> um, and they go to the website and they're like, well, why isn't it just listed here somewhere? We, we now know we will fix it shortly, uh, but we just uh, we have a really silly, very basic CSS setup that I don't know where I'm going to put the links right now because it'll cause things to wrap that I don't want to wrap. So uh, that's the that's the only issue with trying to put it somewhere right now. Is I'm not quite <laughs> sure exactly where. And then if we put it at the bottom, we don't technically have pagination yet. So as we get more and more episodes, it's going to be harder and harder to see the links at the bottom of the page. So yeah, anyways, that's the whole reason why the the website doesn't have them on the main page yet so <laughs> I'm, I'm quite happy that we don't we don't if we don't have uh, our website is very very basic but you know what the website is loading fast that's very important right you can you yes can go there there's not a metric ton of javascript on there there's not a hundred million tracking cookies or anything of the sort as a matter of fact do we have any cookies on the on the website oh yeah we have uh, no yeah, we have some well no technically it's not a cookie but yeah it's you you use local storage which i guess means that maybe i should be uh um putting some do we need a do we need a cookie warning on the website <laughs> uh, uh, i mean the data never gets sent to us and all it is is uh you, you wrote uh, the ability for people to uh when they're playing the browser will automatically store the position so if you come back to it um and you click play again it'll remember where it's at um in the episode um a lot of people use podcast players for this so it's really only people go to the website and then the other piece of dis- uh discord the other piece of javascript that you wrote is the ability to link directly to a timestamp so that you could actually share uh, one of our silly gaffes or something like that with other people. That's, that's true, right? And from this day on, I shall be known as a JavaScript developer. Full stack <laughs> and all. Uh, yeah. but, but speaking of full stack, have you ever evaluated uh, a bunch of web frameworks in Rust? Uh, I mean, yeah, but not recently. So I'm a little outdated on on kind of the usability of of some of them. Uh, the one that I was most familiar with, um, having built a few kind of prototypes with, was you, uh, Y-E-W. Uh, what about you? I have uh, looked very, very briefly at Axum and Tide. And there was oh, see, our definition there. of web frameworks were completely different. <laughs> When I heard web framework, I thought browser framework. Oh, uh, but yes, uh, you're, you're more talking about the uh, HTTP server aspect of it. I should say web um, server framework. Yeah. Right? 
Um, yeah, I've, I've, I'm most familiar with Axum, um, but before that, I played around with Warp for a while. Um, I never tried out Actix Web or uh, Rocket. Rocket, I, I, I have, I have a little bit of an anecdote of about Rocket. The guy Sergio behind Rocket, him, he has no idea who I am, uh, but he spent a tremendous time teaching me Rust on back in the day on on IRC when we had a Rust beginners uh, help, um, Rust help, Rust beginners uh, help channel right on IRC. Um, he was super nice. Uh, probably still is super nice and was very, mm-hmm. very helpful and taught me loads of things. He, he even gave me the basic building blocks for how to make a database in, in Rust, like very, very briefly. Um, he would probably not have any idea who I am or, or how this came to be or, or, or anything. So, but, but, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to, to the work he's done and I'm mostly grateful to the fact that he helped me. Uh, saying that, I have never tried, uh, Rocket myself though. Yeah. For a long time, it required nightly. And for me, I was, uh, anti running nightly for any project. I was hoping to get in a production at some point. And that's maybe just a, I mean, that's probably a discussion topic in itself, but I, I personally just like to use stable and that's no longer a limitation. I, th- I want to say it's been like, uh, it's been able to use stable for at least a year. Probably it's, it seems like it's been a while. Yeah, no, they, 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 that's right. I think it was, was it 0.5 maybe that stopped requiring night? Sounds don't right. Don't me on that, but I don't know. Uh, but, but yeah, um, yes. So Sergio, if, if, if you ever hear this thing, I am very grateful to the help you gave me. You're a very nice person. So, but uh, uh, the, the web frameworks out there that you mentioned, right? You had Wolf, you had Axum, I think, and, and mm-hmm. uh, Actix Web. So I tried... Uh, warp. I tried Axum. I, I poked around with Tide just a little bit. So I just tried very, very briefly these things. But I am interested in which one of these I would use today. Now, Axum seemed to be the go-to, um, the go-to web framework. But I am a little bit interested in actually evaluating these things. I might, I might do a stream sooner uh, rather than later where we explore um, some some web frameworks, right? And and I shall I shall report on a podcast what my thoughts are, of course, after that. Yeah, I think the 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 only thing I didn't really love about Axum is uh, some of the error messages that you can get. And it's honestly the same gripe that I had with Warp, too, is that uh, because of all the generic parameters used, um, when you happen to not get something quite right, the error messages can get kind of cryptic. Um, and there was a situation <laughs> where I was calling a... Uh, a function inside of an Axum route handler that uh, ended up making the thing not send. Um, but this is because like inside of like async code deep somewhere, some future somewhere wasn't send. Um, and it just was a really weird thing where I had like two handlers that looked almost identical and one of them would would work and the other gave a compiler error. And eventually I figured out that, oh yeah, it's when I call this function inside of this handler that that's actually where the issue happens. And finally I was able to track it down. Um, but that, that sort of thing is where uh, the their goal of creating a very easy and concise uh, API uses these generics in such a way that when the compiler uh, can't fit the pattern, uh, you end up getting this, you know, strange error that kind of lists out all the different types that that handler takes. And you're trying to figure out what in the world's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was like my only pain. Well, I guess the other pain point is I feel like uh, I, I need to spend a little more time getting error handling set up initially, but I can't really fault that because I don't know 
how they would provide default mechanisms in addition to allowing us to handle them ourselves because of uh, trait specialization type requirements and stuff, mm. you know? And so what they have are a lot of nice tools to help you build up what you need. But I find that, um, one of the challenges I have is whenever I have a function uh, or handler that needs to render HTML as one option, needs to redirect to another location in another option. So think about the login screen. When mm. you go to the login screen, you're already logged in. It's probably going to redirect you to your homepage, essentially. Because why would you go to the login page? You wouldn't want to see, you know a username and password field to log in if you're already logged in, right? So uh, so a login page needs to redirect you back to a homepage or something. Um, but it also needs to uh, um, uh, potentially submit a post. Well, sorry, that's actually on the, on the, on the other, the, uh, on the post response um, one where you potentially have an error because you, you maybe had, you know, an actual database connectivity issue. So you need to give an actual fail well to the, uh, to the end user. Um, or, you know, you need to redirect the user to the login page, um, or you potentially need to re or sorry, uh, re- redirect them to wherever they go when they've logged in, or you potentially need to re-render the login screen, uh, with the fields that you want to allow them to keep for the next one. Um, and so you end up with like this try, return state because you need to not only potentially return an error, but you also potentially need to return HTML, but you also potentially need to return a redirect, which are all three distinct response types in Axum. And so how do you deal with that? And in the end, I ended up making my own enums that implement into response or whatever. And so you have all these tools to build what you need to. It's that you, you kind of have to do all the setup yourself. And I, I wish that there was a little bit easier way to, to deal with the, um, I need to both render HTML or redirect, um, but also still have an error situation without having to do my own kind of custom types, if that makes sense. Ah, so what I'm hearing here is that we should build our own web framework next. No. Okay, so that's no. what we're going to do now. But the, but the larks aside, <laughs> Uh, what about what about Actix? Have you have you tried Actix Web? No, and, and, and none of that. Okay. No, I, I I I'm really bad because I got turned off by some of the drama years ago, and I know the projects evolved so much since then. Um, but I've been happy with other options, so I've been happy with Axum, um, and I haven't had a real need to switch away from it. Uh, there are some warts, as I just griped about, but I still think it's an amazing library, and I still use it. Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, I do, I do wonder about the, um, availability of other uh, additional functionality. You mentioned login, right? Authentication mm-hmm. is one of those things that I don't really want to write this myself, right? I, uh, generally prefer to depend on a sane individual having written the authentication framework and done all the security stuff. So I, in my confused state, is not going to try to implement this and it ends up looking like the back of a sausage, right? I can't have that. Um, sorry, I don't even know what that means. That, that's, not a, that's, not a, that's not an expression, okay? Let's just make that clear. That's not colloquialism or anything like that. I don't know why I said that, but anyway... The, um, the, so, so implement. So I want something that already has this for me, right? I I like mm-hmm. building things with Rust. I like I like you know you write you build things you you write a lot of things from scratch. But when it comes to dealing with web development, right? I, I kind of don't want to. I want to I want to be able to just throw authentication in there. I want TLS to be an add-on. I want there to be. So I heard that there's this database out there, right? Bonsai. <laughs> Does it work well with web uh, servers now? Yeah. No. I mean, uh, the the great thing about Bonsai's database types um, is they're all clone, 
So you can uh, you can put that into your uh, you know like for Axum you add like an extension layer or something like that that allows you to extract um, various pieces of, pieces of data that you put into your application state. And so you can just you know say oh this route needs my database and you you know give it the type and because you gave it to the router at the start when you set up your application um, it just gives you a clone to that initial database that you set up so it's really straightforward to integrate into Axum at least so when you say give you a clone, I'm, I'm going to assume that you don't mean it clones the entire database and gives you that. No, no, it clones a reference to the open database. Uh, so internally, it handles um, and it handles the idea of concurrent access. Now, you see, that would be a lovely feature. We just cloned your entire database so <laughs> per connection, yeah. right? And then, hang on, my website fell over. We had three users, three concurrent users, and it fell over. Uh, but uh, that, see, that's that's cool, right? So we can have we can have all these things, and we don't have to build them ourselves, right? That's, that's that's kind of what I want because generally um, I'm not a fan of doing web development. And before people start throwing rocks in my general direction, I will tell you that I was a web developer when PHP and MySQL 3 was the standard quote unquote stack or the LAMP stack, right? And there was there was no <laughs> such thing as a full stack because JavaScript was really not considered a, a um, it was considered a second class language at that point right it was not 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 uh, as prolific maybe is that the word uh, as it yeah. is today right as i need to have a dictionary here so i can sound a bit smart <laughs> but um, yeah so, so 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 i've been doing web development a long time i stopped doing it because i thought that i could not keep up with what is happening i know a lot of people feel that way right? they're like the the movement of of technology is so fast that probably more people than me are feeling this immense stress over trying to stay up to date with everything so rust is really nice in that sense there's not too much going on and there's a lot of areas you can ignore uh, there for instance i have very little understanding of embedded programming so i kind of just close my eyes to the to the whole thing i'm very much dependent on the standard library being present for once right i um, you know, I did, I did, I did do, I did do one implementation of the Rust guessing game. I mentioned this to someone today. I did an implementation of the Rust guessing game using inline assembly to some degree, and I thought that was like a fun exercise. But that was just for wait, fun. Wait, 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 Rust, Rust guessing game. What's this? Yeah, did you did you know? Did you know this? That Rust has this book that is free to read. Mm. It's amazing. It's known as the book. And if you ever <laughs> read I just the book... I myself as someone who's never <laughs> read the book fully? <laughs> so you've been... Do- I Honestly, I haven't read the book myself, right? I'm going to be very honest, right? Um, I see... I, I read uh, parts of a very early version of the book that was talking about the dining philosopher's problem as, as the introduction to Rust. And that that kind of blew my mind a little bit. And not in a good way. It was more... I was, I was sitting there <laughs> reading this stuff and I was thinking, because it shows you an arc mutex and every time i show someone on stream what an arc mutex is and what it looks like i go through this in three steps i create the thing that goes into the mutex that goes into the arc in three steps because otherwise you end up with this massive type with two new calls and another constructor of source for the for the thing you're putting in there, right? And this thing can frankly look quite intimidating because you 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 and and I and I came from from knowing C sharp as well at this point, right? So it wasn't that generics was new, but the, the, to see an arc there's probably a reason why this isn't in the book anymore. So to see an arc mutex very early on was very very daunting, right? But uh, but yeah, so so in the book in the beginning of the book, they, it'll teach you how to write a guessing game, and I sort of did that 
you know, being a pretentious developer, I did this using a bit of inline assembly because I thought it w- would be sort of a fun, fun exercise. I, mean, I had no other reason <laughs> to write inline assembly. Right? I can't, I, I can't uh, understand. I don't, I don't understand SIMD, right? I don't really know how to make use of these instructions. So the, the guessing game is as far as I can go with, with inline assembly. <laughs> yeah, but I thought it was fun. Right? Nice. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I, I've, I've skimmed the book overall and I've read specific chapters, especially the lifetimes chapter many times. Ah, chapter um, nine, and you I've, say. Uh, if that's what it is, <laughs> but yeah, um, I always just search, you know, whatever search engine I happen to be using of the week, um, for, you know, rust lifetimes and it's usually one of the first results <laughs> but it's been a while since i've had to go look at that thankfully now i uh i think there's two separate topics that i, I think we might only have time for one uh, kind of depending on how much we actually talk about it and they're slightly controversial topics i'm a little bit curious uh, if you have any opinions on either of them and one of them is using integer versus floating point math for something like gui for layouts um and uh the other is layout algorithms like flexbox versus uh kind of more purpose-built things that we see in some of the the other things like Flutter and Swift UI. Um, so those are kind of two topics that I I thought could be kind of fun to chat about because you and I have um, we've at least talked about layout algorithms. I don't think we've talked about the whole integer versus floating point math. Um, and I've made some decisions in my in, in Cludgeon and GUI that I'm curious what other people will think about. Interesting indeed. Okay, uh, let me make, make let me let me just be be very clear. Chapter nine. I had to look it up. It was error handling. I just said a number. Okay. I had no idea what it was. So anyone who thought, like, do you know the book inside? No, I do not. <laughs> chapter 9 is error handling. Go and read chapter 9. Okay, so so floating point versus, versus integer. I, are, are we talking about this from sort of a, a generic perspective of are we always going to have floating point numbers? Pretty much. Because, like, so so at the end of the day, when you say I want to draw a line between point one and point two on the screen, you have to specify, are those pixels? Are they uh, logical pixels, which is like some scaled representation of pixels based on the monitor's uh, current display scale configuration? What 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 are those coordinates? And then can you address fractional coordinates? Oh wow, this is um, this is making me think back to when I was doing a little bit of OpenGL programming and uh, everything. Yeah, everything is basically because everything floats zero there. And one, yeah, and yeah, uh, um, it's very it's very different. I, I think if you are familiar with graphics programming, you are probably going to think floating point all the way, right? I, I want my uh, I want my zero to to one, right? Uh, and then, of course, depending on what you have, zero could be the middle of the screen, or it could be the top uh, left of the screen, or the bottom left of the screen. It depends entirely on what you're using, right? Uh, I think from a from someone who doesn't know graphics programming, I think integers would probably make more sense, especially if you're talking about. And I'm, I'm not talking about this without going into depth or anything, right? But if we're just thinking about you as a programmer, you want to draw a line across the entire top of the screen. So you're going to say zero. Your x value is going to go from zero to the the maximum um, number of pixels you can have on your screen, right? But mm-hmm. if you are then dealing with different size pixels, as in as in Ill- illogical <laughs> pixels, right? Um, if <laughs> yeah. you uh, if you're dealing with these crazy pixels, right, uh, and, and and all the fun that ensues from them, right? Then 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 zero to one kind of makes sense, or or at least zero to a hundred, because then then we're kind of talking we're talking about like a percentage where a hundred would then represent, or one would represent the utmost right side of the screen. And I'm wondering if this is maybe where it comes from. So. 
maybe maybe floating point math is maybe maybe we need both maybe we need actual pixels no don't go there <laughs> no let me so, so let me tell you a little bit of what i've done um because you you've you've uh you've kind of elaborated a little bit so one of the challenges that i had in in Cludgeon version one was implementing a tile map and you might ask yourself, why is that tricky? You just draw images over and over and over. But you need to make sure that they're seamless. You don't want to accidentally have a rounding error on your floating point math and end up when you draw your second tile with a little tiny gap so that when the GPU renders it, now you have a little black line between those two pixels or whatever. Um, or sometimes it's you know aliased a little bit so you mm. end up with you know a blurry spot between the two things or a whatever. A classic problem, um, no yeah. Especially with, you know, 2D graphics that are being done on the GPU, because yeah. as you pointed out, once you're in shader land, it's all, float well, it doesn't have to be all floating points, but most of the time it ends up being floating points. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, the, and it all stems from the fact that 3D space doesn't like know anything about pixels. And so when you set up the viewport, so to speak, um, you're giving it, you know, X, Y width height, um, maximum and minimum, uh, Z that you're wanting to, to do to make this transform that allows you to scale 640 pixels or whatever arbitrary number you're trying to scale into a range from zero to one based on the width and height of the viewport that you've configured. And so at the end of the day, I'm still doing floating points. So what am I even talking about here? Well, inside of uh, Cludgeon and GUI, I have two types, PX and LP. PX being pixels, device pixels, the actual physical pixels of the screen. And LP is an arbitrary unit that um, off the top of my head, I can't even remember what the fraction is, but it's some crazy fraction. And it's specifically designed to be the lowest common multiple of uh, a couple of different numbers, 72, 96, uh, and uh, I can't remember what other else, but um, but the the goal was that with 96 pixels per inch, which is a very common measurement, um, that uh, 96 pixels should at a scale factor of 1.0 be equal to uh, one inch represented in this logical pixels type. Um, so whatever measurement that is. Under the hood, I've represented these as I32s which makes them nice and small, four bits just like, or not four bits, four bytes just like uh, F32s. Um, but at the end of the day, when you do math on these things, you have very predictable results as opposed to these you know, rounding errors. But because it's integer math, you do things like division, you're going to get whole number results as opposed to the remainder. So you have to kind of deal with the rounding factors yourself sometimes too. Um, so at the end of the day, I've, I've come up with this integer based solution that allows you to, in the front end, um, create very predictable, you know, conversions between both logical pixels and pixels, um, as well as to very easily create the seamless tiled texture because, or, you know, tile map type texture system, because it's all integers. So you're not going to accidentally have rounding errors when you add, you know, the width that you calculated to your existing width, because it's already been rounded at that point. So either you rounded up or down when you did the division and from that point forward you carry your air or your you know uh not quite enough that you're gonna have to compensate for in the future um forward uh when you're drawing your tile map so i don't know if that made any sense at all uh, but that's kind of the the goal that i had was to make it so that um everything you're doing is pixel perfect in gui I see. Uh, I do. I did run into. I actually ran into the problem of having these odd graphical artifacts in my um, 
in my uh, adventures into OpenGL. And the reason for that was because I was off by 0.5 everywhere, right? I had made some very... Um, I had I had a, a maths error somewhere in the code, which led to to the pixels being sort of off by one point. Uh, sorry, zero point five. Right, uh, that was very mm-hmm. weird. Um, and 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 I remember struggling with that for quite a while, and then eventually it got fixed through the help uh, of some community members. This was quite a while ago, so I don't exactly remember who. I think I might have made made some notes around this, which I no longer have. So that comment was pointless. But um, the, uh, <laughs> the 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 story the the, the story here is though um, uh, if you don't have problem if you don't have mistakes in your math right and, and jokes aside if your math is fine isn't the uh, fraction so small in general that there is no precision errors right so I, I, you would hope so that, but yeah. the problem is is that you can't really control the truncation that happens on the GPU and so the question is if you end up round if you end up giving it a floating point that ends up being slightly less than the pixel that you're looking for that you're targeting um, by 0.001 which is well above floating points uh, you know epsilon the the what it considers the difference between you know two distinct values um, and I've just seen issues where it rounds down because it's truncating as opposed to rounding. And so you have to be very careful about actually rounding your operations. Otherwise you might be slightly under your target number and it ends up being truncated down to the, to the number below it, as opposed to being actually rounded by the GPU, if that makes sense. Uh, no, I'm still thinking that Epsilon sounds like a Pokemon, but uh, could you tell me a little <laughs> bit what that means? Oh, Epsilon. Yeah. So um, in, in terms of floating okay, point so, numbers, right? Yeah, so floating point numbers for people who aren't super familiar are represented um, in a binary format um, in a really weird way that involves like a fraction and an exponent. And I, I'm not going to try to even explain it any further than that. <laughs> uh, but but essentially, because of that, uh, not every value uh, can be represented, uh, you know, perfectly. Um, so there's going to be some precision loss. And there is a constant known as epsilon, which uh, off the top of my head, so I could get this slightly wrong. So apologies if the definition isn't quite right, um, is the smallest um, distinct value representable by a floating point such that if you compare one number against the other, if you like subtract it and take the absolute value of that, if the value is less than epsilon, you can consider that to be essentially just a rounding error. Now, because multiple operations can ha- all have their own little imprecisions, you may need to not just look at epsilon as a factor because every operation adds a little bit more uncertainty, right? And so you may end up doing a multiple of epsilon depending on how many uh, numbers or how many operations you've done to get to the result you're going to. But essentially, it's just a way to uh, com- uh, a measurement that allows you to uh, I don't know, uh, determine whether or not two floating point numbers are close enough to be considered the exact same value. Okay, that was fair enough. Uh, that was uh, um, a good description. Um, so, but but uh, but uh, please don't ask me to repeat that by tomorrow because information might, might <laughs> be lost even, by that. I just finished saying it. I don't even know how good of a job I did because I'm like that. That I've, I feel like I just rambled for a little bit there. <laughs> Listen, what we need to do, every time we explain something, we need to do this in the most monotonous voice ever, so no one ever remembers what we said, so no one can call us out on it, right? Yeah, okay, so so yeah, yeah, the floating point versus integer, you had another one, right? So so I would would just say, right, if 
Um, if we're working with fixed resolutions, uh, then then that obviously brings brings an issue. But I don't think that we will work with fixed resolutions, right? But I still like I still think integers are kind of easy to work with, especially in the concept of a tile map, because you are most likely going to say, uh, "Here's a tile map, and what's the size of each tile?" Maybe thirty-two uh-huh. by thirty-two or sixty-four by sixty-four, right? One of those things. That's that's mostly how I've seen tile maps tile maps made and almost certainly you want those tiles to be pixel aligned like there it's very rare that you would not want them to actually be aligned to the physical pixels yeah um you know the the logical pixels that's a different story those are those you can do whatever you want with but at the end of the day in gui i want things to be aligned pixel perfect um and so even though you may be representing stuff in this other type that scales based on the the display's scale factor um at the end of the day it's going to get converted to uh pixels and those are going to be pixel perfect in their conversion um and so that's that's the part that my goal is um it's it, there it's not perfect um as some people may be you know wondering like what what happens with rotation right um now i would argue that a gui you're only going to either rotate 90 degrees or some multiple of 90 degrees or none at all like that's just pretty much all that's going to happen for most guis um the there is an issue that if i like rotate like the letter t or something like that um and it's a small um it's a small letter um the rounding errors of the rotation cause the t or whatever letter you draw to just grow and shrink very slightly as it rotates because sometimes it's an extra pixel tall sometimes it's not and that has to do with the fact that i'm i'm uh you know clamping the rotation the, the rotated points to the pixel grid. Um, and if I supported subpixels um, or fractional pixels, uh, which I don't necessarily have to switch away from integers to support, but if I supported subpixels, that effect would get you know, noticeably um, uh, smaller. So the, the question I really have uh, that, that this was meant to, to go down to is, do I actually care to make Cludgeon like support subpixels for this arbitrary rotational thing that I don't actually think GUI applications will use? Or do I just embrace what I have right now, which is pixel perfect stuff, and just say that's good enough? Um, I, uh, you know what I really want? Now I want a transform widget, just because you said that, so I can have crooked buttons. <laughs> I think that will be. There you go. At this point, I like the simplicity of what I have, and I know how I would add subpixel support if I need it, but I'm trying to get by without it. I, you know what? This, this brings me to something else, right? We we're talking about user interfaces, and one of the a problem I solved uh, that I have since unsolved by by throwing out the implementation because I wasn't happy with it is the transition. Right, you mentioned tra- transition, so mm-hmm. changing alignment from top left corner to the bottom right corner. If you set the animate uh, value of that property that represents the alignment, it would draw this as an animation, right? Um, but I, I have since taken it away because I didn't like the syntax and I wasn't I wasn't happy with it. Right, just like, like with most things, um, we're not happy with them, so we rewrite them. Have you thought about how we're going to do animations in in Google nope. then? <laughs> I I very briefly thought about it, but I keep not thinking about it. Um, and it's at the end of the day, it's because I don't really know how how I would use those systems because I I'm not a very f- 
experience with making super animated user interfaces. Um, I'm much more of a minimalistic guy. If I was to build a website for you today, it would be a plain HTML website that kept spitting out, you know, plain HTML, you know, pages as you navigate, unless I had a really good reason to, to have it be, you know, an actual web app of sorts. Uh, but even then it would be as, as simple as possible because I don't like coding for the web browser. Um, so yeah, I know, I know CSS's animation framework is quite extensive. Um, and I want to support some animations, um, but I haven't really thought too much about them. Um, at the end of the day, we have uh, in GUI we have these signals or you know types that are like signals. I call mm. it a value currently um, that you know you can write new values to, and uh, everything reacts when you know you've updated the values or whatever. And so, in theory, an animation system can just take a value that is uh, uh, you know something that can be expressed in the range and tween the value over a period of time. And it don't, doesn't necessarily need to know anything about anything. You know, it, it just is, you're, you're creating an animation for this one particular property by just uh, creating like some tween effect that runs over the next one second that changes the value from zero to a hundred or something like that. Um, so I'm not, I, I haven't really thought of it beyond that very basic idea that you should be able to use the value slash signal system to power the animation system. Um, but in terms of the actual APIs, how you're going to set them up, how you transition from one, like, you know, can, can you have one widget slide off while another one slides in that type of transition? You know, um, I haven't really thought too much about those specific building blocks, but to, to me, I think those are just going to be individual kind of widget types that manage those individual things for you. But I haven't, you know, that's just a vague idea. That's kind of what I had. I had uh, the way you would animate a value is you would wrap it in an animation call. And you give it the value in the context and you add another argument, which was the easing function. So you could have like ease in sign mm -hmm. or ease, uh, ease out or elastic or, or I had a few uh, of, of these different ones, bounds and, and all that. And they sound very cool, but when you actually have them in a terminal, you can't really see much of the bouncing <laughs> and, and such. But the, the easing functions, um, the, the ease in and out sign, they were like probably the most, uh, most pleasant yeah. ones to observe, right? So I do think an easing function should definitely be there, right? Um, if anyone's totally. interested in, in understanding easing functions or, or at least seeing a few of them, there's, there's a website called easings.net where you can actually see these. I think there's like a JavaScript thing. I don't know, because I don't have JavaScript enabled in my browser and, uh, and I'm the one who wrote the JavaScript <laughs> for, for our website. So as far <laughs> as I'm concerned, it works, right? But that's... You know, um, are you saying I've tested your code more than you have? Oh yeah, I mean, isn't this the ethos, <laughs> right, of of programmers? Yeah. You let your end users find the bugs for you, so you don't have to. Like, it's it's the moment we take to relax is when we let the users have the experience, as we say in double quotes, where they find all the bugs, they get angry, and then they report them, and you have QA testing for free, right? This is another one of those 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 kind of um, uh, corporation life hacks, right? You let your users find your bugs. Uh, but, but large yeah. aside, um, absolutely, there is, um, I do have JavaScript enabled there, but I don't have JavaScript enabled uh, generally when I'm, I'm browsing the web um, just because there's so much gunk on there, right? Uh, and then people keep sending me pictures from Imager, and, and uh, I don't dare to open them on stream, so, so I'll probably <laughs> save, save myself <laughs> a few times um, by, by doing so, right? Uh, but yeah, so there's, there's the easing function, right? So there's the animation um, that, that is there. But you know what? I have not forgotten what you said, uh, surprisingly. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steer us back into that. 
you mentioned layouts, flexbox or yeah. otherwise, right? And I do, I do, uh, I did spend a lot of time thinking about this. Um, I actually started my uh, text user interface layout library quite a long time ago, um, many years ago, and I threw it away. I, I, I tried it, and it had this kind of weird HTML-like um, syntax, and and it was it was really bad. Uh, I remember reading this blog post by. I think the person's name is M. Brubeck. This is one of the earlier well-known names in, in the Rust world. So if you've been doing Rust for a long time, you probably know who that is. If not, I don't know how involved in the in the Rust language they are these days. right? But they wrote a blog post in 2014 uh, about implementing some some very basics of a web browser and uh, and sort of how to parse and lay out HTML. And uh, um, and that's what I started with. So I started with the... Because the, that was what I knew best, right? Um, then I looked a little bit at constraint systems that I did not understand too well. I believe Cassowary was one of the constraint mm-hmm. solvers. Uh, there's a box model as well, which is about making things into boxes, unsurprisingly, from the name. <laughs> um, but uh, what I settled for, what I liked the most, was what Swift UI and Flutter is doing. It's a um, single-pass layout which where, where you pass the constraint to the child, and the child will lay itself out inside those constraints and then pass the size back up. So if you imagine that we're laying things out in a vertical space and we have 10 units of height available, so we're going to pass in 10 units of available space to the first node. And depending on what type of node you have, what type of widget you have, right? If it's a text widget, for instance, then it's just going to, Put all the text as much as possible that will fit within these ten, um, and then it's gonna we're gonna get the height back. Well, we're gonna get the width as well, but the width is less relevant in in a vertical context, right? So we get a height of maybe three back. Then we're gonna lay out the next child. So now we're going from ten to seven, and that's kind of just we just keep decreasing the the constraint that we have, and and that's how it sort of works. So it's a little bit different from your from your web layout, but once you get used to it, I, I think it's it's quite flexible. And um, and efficient and, and and most of all, from a developer's perspective, it's a lot easier than what HTML is doing in terms of layers. So I'm not specifically talking about Flexbox. I'm talking about HTML and CSS together, right? Which is in in my world feels a lot more complex. I don't know what what are your what are your thoughts? Well, that's I mean, ultimately HTML and CSS support uh, box model, um, which is different than what you were talking about. I I, I remember on your Discord um, seeing a link uh, to a different layout algorithm that was either box or rect based. That I, I know exactly what you're talking mm. about. It's, it's focused on splitting splitting the view either vertically or horizontally at each step, essentially, until you get down to everything's divided into its own little areas. Um, and it was a cool layout system. Um, but yeah, I uh, I ended up agreeing with you uh, that I, I like. The purpose-built widgets that you know I have, like a rows widget or a columns widget or a wrap widget or various things like that. That uh, what their whole goal is is to transform a list of widgets into some layout representation of those widgets. Mm. Um, and uh, and so yeah, I, I initially started with this GUI refactor, thinking that I was going to use um, Taffy, which is a um, a fork of uh, the stretch library, which is just basically a flex and grid and box implementation, uh, which is uh, mimics the browser as closely as possible um, to try to be a standards compliant for for basically be able to compute 
Flexbox is in the same way that browsers will. Um, but the the style type for that uh, for Taffy has like twenty something fields on it. That's how complicated Flexbox and Grid and Box are in a web browser. And like I had always imagined that for GUI. Um, even if I used flex flexbox under the hood, I would create wrappers that were a little bit easier to use because there's a lot of situations with flexbox properties in the browser where you can set them up and they don't mean anything. You've set the properties. They just don't, impact how you're using them or whatever um, or they don't impact them the way that you're expecting and it's because you know th- several properties are kind of intertwined or depend on each other in ways that uh, may not initially be obvious until you've you know worked with flexbox or grids and uh, you know over time um, so I prefer making the user experience as easy as possible. When I say user, I mean uh, developer experience. And I've always thought that just having purpose-built widgets is is the way to go. Um, so I had started with Taffy, though, on this rewrite because I wanted to minimize the amount of code I was writing. <laughs> Um, but there were some various uh, architectural reasons uh, due to how you have to box uh, the measure functions for doing custom measurements that made it a little ugly to implement. I literally needed a thread to do it. Um, and I, I didn't really like having this worker thread that all I did was compute layouts. Um, so yeah, I ended up getting uh, shared a talk on how Flutter's uh, layout system works. I'm like, this is very similar to how I was doing it in GUI V1. Um, and so I ended up kind of uh, going down that path. Um, and so yeah, that was mostly the topic was whether or not uh, you also agreed with me on uh, Flexbox is just kind of, it's really powerful, but at the same time, it's really hard to use. Well, I don't know if it's hard to use, but it's it's certainly not straightforward to understand how it all works. Um, and I think that these other types can be much easier for a developer and other developers who are looking at your code who haven't seen it for the first time to understand what's going on. It's also worth noting that not everyone in the world is a web developer. So I think assuming that's what everyone knows is is possibly not a correct assumption. I mean, yes, it is very common. It, it, most people can bang out some basic HTML, right, and, and do a little bit of CSS and and, and such. But I, I think it's it's like the 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 Flutter model or the Swift UI model. I think they're roughly the same, right? Um, they're not. They're not complicated to wrap your head around, so I don't think the learning curve is particularly steep. I think you, you'd have an easier time converting someone who knows HTML and CSS layout into this model than you have converting someone who doesn't know HTML and CSS into understanding that model instead, because it's obviously way more complex, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think the trade-off is worth it, right? Even if you have 10 web developers ready to use it, um, I think they can uh, suck it up and uh, learn something new. Um, but, but, but jokes aside, I, th- I think I think it's not difficult to to um, grasp how this works, right? You 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 use your stacks for multiple items. You can use expansions and spaces for for stretching out empty space and 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 so, and there is some similarities between. Uh, what you would do with flexbox and so on uh, to to some very some very very shallow degree right so i think it's not complicated to 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 understand how this works right so i think it's definitely uh, a sensible choice right mm-hmm. yeah. I, I, I would say it has to be right because the both both flutter and swift ui has taken sort of a similar approach to this right they both have that similar constraint based layout right 
Yeah, I think the the only gotcha or tricky part that I have is the fact that I'm still planning on targeting the browser with native DOM elements. And so either I have to manually respond to the events in the browser uh, interactively and reposition uh, elements manually based on my layout algorithms, or I have to design these types that uh, only support features that I can express in CSS using their grid box flex systems. Um, and so that's the only like asterisk is that because I'm still targeting the browser, I either need to make these be compatible somehow to make sure that I don't use, I don't, I don't implement features that don't exist for the browser. Um, or, uh, you know, basically I just have to, you know, I, I don't know how much overhead there is of manually laying things out because until I go to actually try it, I really don't know how bad the JavaScript to WASM uh, overhead becomes if I have a very efficient layout algorithm that uh, only has to update a portion of the screen anytime that things are, are happening, right? Like if I'm not actually reassigning every widget's position on every frame that I'm doing these layouts and I'm only updating positions of nodes that have actually changed, how bad is it? Like maybe unifying the, the layout code between browser and native is worth it even though there's extra overhead on the resizes. I, I don't know. Um, so these are things that I'll be interested to play with as I get further along in, in development. It's going to be very little tiny features or very ed edge casey type things that, you know, I, I might go and try to implement on native. Then when I go to add it on browser, I don't realize that, oh, it actually, I can't make it work the exact same way. And then I'll have to make the decision, do I care enough? Uh, or do I, you know, uh, like, is it is it a big deal enough that developers are going to care that there's this slight discrepancy? Um, or uh, should I update the native implementation to match what the browser is going to do or something like that? So, you know, I, I do want to make it so that when you build native and then you build for the browser, that the experiences that what you see is what you get on both of them. So when you run on the browser, it should look identical to when you run natively, excluding potentially font choices. You know, what the browser's uh, fonts are available might be a little bit different than what a native app is able to see for various reasons, um, that sort of stuff. That is, um, I, I wouldn't have thought system fonts, but uh, of, of course you can download fonts, right? So, so yes, I, I feel like some browsers don't allow you to have every system font, but maybe I'm wrong about that. That's why I hesitated on that. I have no idea. But there is, of course, the ability to download fonts as well. And I'm not saying that as a solution. Yes. I'm saying you could potentially have more fonts on, on the web than you have uh, on your system, right? Or natively, because you could build it. Well, I guess if you build it in, in theory, you can use it in both locations. But um, actually, I guess, no. Because you, you need it to be accessible as a URL in the browser for you to load it. So you can't actually embed it in the, in the actual executable, whereas you could embed a font in the native executable one thing that I want to mention on this, right? As I was, as a part of my life, uh, have, have professionally been a hired gun for various agencies to build things. And, and a lot of it has been, a lot of it has been web development. And I remember being in, in meetings with clients who simply don't understand that not everyone has the same uh, size of the browser window open. They don't have the same screen resolution. Mm -hmm. There's like so when they present you with the um, the design as a as a PDF or as a as a PSD rather, right back in in the Photoshop days, right? Uh, you get this thing and and they're asking for this pixel perfect thing, and you you sort of have to go through explaining how how this will be pixel perfect on your computer with your resolution, and 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 this is before. Um, we even had scaling, right? So, so um, 
you know, it was it was, it was a little bit absurd, right? Because you have to explain this thing, right? And uh, and then I had clients who said, "Here's roughly what we want this to look like," and um, and now not being constrained by the misgivings or or. Uh, by the incorrect beliefs of the client, you can now make this thing work uh, on desktop. You can make it work on mobile because you sort of have free reins to build the interface that is good, not the interface that is exact replica to the pixel of, of what the designer has delivered to you. So on that note, I think in having a discrepancy is fine as long as it's not a destructive discrepancy, right? So yeah. as long as it doesn't place a button on the other side of the world instead of slightly further to the right, I think that's, right. that's perfectly fine, right? Uh, I agree with same- that. I think small tolerances are okay. I don't, I don't think that you should necessarily expect pixel-perfect layout on everything, um, but it does depend. If you have designed your your layout to be like specific measurements, they should be the same specific measurements on on the browser too. It's just you might not fit in the browser window anymore, right, or something like that. Mm. You know, <laughs> that sort of thing. But then then it becomes a then becomes a question of of how like do you reflow the widgets or or but then I guess it should behave the same way in the in the application as it does on. The, on the, yeah, um, and, and I mean, you know, in CSS, you can specify the overflow behavior to wrap or clip and stuff. And so in theory, we should be able to set everything up to be very, very close to the same. So does this mean that you're going to implement a sort of layout engine based on on, on this now? Uh, am I going to or did I already? <laughs> <laughs> and then the next question is, how many widgets have you done? So I can just copy these because this is what I Three. do. Three. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a button, a label, and a what, what I call a flex, but um, it's really just rows or columns. Um, and it was originally because it was uh, it was actually going to be a flex thing. And technically, the flex box doesn't even do anything on, on web. It just renders a div right now with no extra things. So it's, <laughs> like when I I say they're implemented i say that with the most extreme air quotes possible <laughs> I, I yeah i have to i have implemented most of the widgets i need there's one widget that i have to implement uh they will probably be implemented after i've done my release but it's the table view because that one requires oh, yeah. a little bit more attention than um just a directional flow layout like a horizontal flow or a vertical flow. so the horizontal and the vertical flow layouts are, are very very similar they're very simple we're just changing the axis right but once you have a table you you have to sort of lay it out and then you have to resize you have to either resize the height or the width of of all the uh, the uh, rows and columns right in the table you you kind of you sort of have to choose, right? Although, um, arguably, you should resize the column and not, not um, unless you have fixed height, uh, fixed width columns, then you're going to resize the, the height of the rows, right? So it's a little bit more complicated. So let me know when you get to the table so I can just copy your code. It's all those unlesses that... Also, no, it's it's funny. Um, so in the last version of GUI, one of the reasons why I stopped was the table view. Um, so, <laughs> um, Dax Peta, I'm calling you out by name here. I know you don't listen to every episode, but... Uh, uh, he is. Uh, he, he was helping out um, a lot with some uh, some stuff before some real life stuff uh, interfered um, towards when I ended up stopping working on GUI last time, um, and he kept saying how he was going to implement the table view, <laughs> and so <laughs> I kind of just kept putting it down as like something that would eventually happen, and so you know I I, I could never quite bring myself to actually write that code. Um, so <laughs> at the at the end of the day, I am not going to start on that widget right away, and I'm not going to start on a lot of these things. 
right away because I'm nearing what I consider the end of GUI, not the end of GUI, potentially the end of GUI. Um, I don't, I mean, it's a massive project. Like, mm. I mean, table is one thing, but there's so many other things that have to get done too, to make this a viable framework. And with me implementing the first pass of this native uh, rendering layer, um, I now finally have a, a demo that I could show you that it's not perfect, but uh, it has a browser window with a button on it and a native window with a button on it. And when you click one of them, it increments the counter on a bonsai DB server that both of them are talking to and automatically refreshes the button on the other screen so that it has the new count. And you can switch between the two and see it just magically working. Same app, same code, running once in the browser and once natively, both talking to a Bonsai server. That is the demo that I was aiming for. So now at this point, the question is, is what I built a good enough step in a different direction than the other frameworks out there um, that have similar like that we could actually see ourselves using for develop developing a game because if it's not a good enough step in a direction that we care about compared to building some of the dioxys for example mm. or any other framework um then i don't want to spend the next two years trying to build this framework right <laughs> like i would rather kind of nip this in the bud as early as possible um as like no we're not going to do this um or embrace it and really try to get some community movement behind it. So yeah, I've only got three widgets barely implemented, you know, scratching the surface. Uh, but part of that is because implementing other widgets in theory can be paralyzed a little bit, right? Um, there's obviously going to be some stuff like how styling works and stuff that still needs to get, you know, fully ironed out. Um, but I don't know that I need to fully iron those out to have that question of, is this good? Is this a step in a direction that is worthwhile compared to Dioxys, Iced, and various other frameworks out there? Or uh, should we just abandon it and say that those frameworks are in, are going in the right direction and we should support one of them and embrace one of them instead? Um, and so I, I was starting to work on kind of the documentation phase yesterday um, of starting to document how the architecture actually works and uh, actually adding Rust docs to a lot of stuff um, to try to make it so that I can ask you the question, like, do you want to use this in a game? Um, and, uh, you know, there's literally no pressure there because I have a lot of big projects already on my plate. I'm writing a database. Uh, we're we're going to write a game together. Um, so we really both have to want to think that this thing could be a really good framework for the Rust ecosystem for us, for me to want to to finish it up. So I'm, I'm kind of getting it to a point where I can show it off, not to just you, but also to the community, uh, uh, you know, in a blog post, like, like here's, here's what I built and why I think it deserves to exist. And based on the reactions is kind of going to go where, whether I continue developing it or not. I have to, I have to bring this conversation back to the end of our previous episode i believe it was uh you talked a little bit about your vi your vision right because i said mm -hmm. um we have to know a few things uh, on account of are we allowed to hack something in specifically for the game um and and you wanted to write this as part of uh, a collection of software that is uh, pure rust and and sort mm -hmm. of covers everything right um, so, so with, how do you feel about that? If we, if I, if I say I looked at GUI, it's um, it has way too many vowels in the names. Um, how would <laughs> um, and 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 um, and I'm not sure I can 
commit to working on this thing, right? Because I'll be stuck writing the table widget, for instance. So, so if that yeah. happened, right? How would you? How would that affect your your vision for how you would? Because at the same time, I do feel like I don't want to. I don't want to talk you out of doing what you want to do, right? And I'm having this conversation before I even looked at it, obviously, right? So there's a couple of different things. One is is that I don't really know how this game project fits into the Bonsai DB project as a whole. We obviously have talked about using it as the back end for, for data storage and stuff, but it doesn't support any form of high availability right now. And it doesn't support clustering yet, which uh, I was chatting with someone about yesterday of whether it was it was even in the foreseeable future. And uh, the short answer is no, I don't see it in the foreseeable future. Um, and so if we have this database technology that can't even cluster, um, you know, and we build a game that starts getting popular, what are we going to do then? Right. Am I going to actually work on the clustering or, you know, uh, so so there's a little bit of a question of like, how quickly do we expect this game to be playable and shippable and, you know, uh, shippable in the loosest sense, you mm. know, where we can where we can uh, feel good about accepting a dollar from someone to play it or something like that. You oh, know? Early access. Uh, Nothing works. Perfect. Yeah, Let's ship it. Right? Exactly. Um, you know, versus us wanting to like really embracing it as, yeah, this is, this is going well and we know we're going to be building this for a long time and yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and improve bonsai and this thing as part of it. So at the end of the day, I know that I need to write some admin tools to help deal with maintaining bonsai DB, um, you know, and helping developers interact with it. Cause having a console where you can view your data is very important. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> having to write your own code to check the what's in your actual database is kind of annoying, honestly. <laughs> um, so, uh, getting away from that as soon as possible, really nice. Um, there are and certain databases out there that will simply just destroy and drop your data. So you could use that. Then you never have to yeah, worry about what's true, inside true. the database, right? Thinking. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Thinking um, outside of the box. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. No, but I, I get that. Like, you should definitely have some way of of some kind of admin interface into a database. I think most databases have that, so it's it's, it's an understandable goal to have, right? Um, so I'm just I just want to sort of gauge your feelings for in case I uh, find the, the GUI library and the game simply too overwhelming to work on with my limited understanding of both of these worlds, right? So that's kind of like I'm just just getting just testing the water here to see if, if it's gonna obviously you could work on on. on are, are you are you getting are you getting cold feet? No, no, my I am no. I got like double no. woolly socks about the game. Okay, there's the, there's there's. <laughs> no, I mean, feet are in the fire when it comes to a game, right? I I'm definitely want to build a game. I am just worried that I am not going to be able to keep up with your vision for a full-fledged UI library that is not specific to the game. So that so this is just I don't think you I don't think you necessarily have to. Like so if it's only us building this framework, it's not worth it. Like that that's my honest opinion here is that if at the end of the day it's only going to be you and I using it for this game, it's not worth it. It needs to be something that other people in the community believe also should exist. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to have a bunch of people contributing on it on day one, but the more people that are interested in using it or the more people that are helping contribute, I think will drive the project forward on its own, regardless of whether or not you're helping with specifics of it. Um, 
I don't know how many widgets we need to create a successful game, right? Like, um, I know we need more than a button and a label, but I don't know how many widgets we actually need. I'm sure we need a table view at some point, right? So that's going to have to get written to, to allow our game to exist. We, need, we definitely um, but need it's, a progress bar, right? That's very important. Yeah, we'll need progress bars too, yep. Um, um, I mean, honestly, the most complicated one usually to implement is the text edit widget. Um, and I am excited because Cosmic Text has a built-in editor type that seems, I haven't used it very much, to abstract a lot of those common editing functionalities away into the into the library. It even has a VI-compatible VI mode for the editor Wait, to hang, like support hang on, hang on. What? Uh, exactly. Um, what? <laughs> so there is an editor t- type. With Vim, uh-huh. Vim, Vim, Vim mode, right? So it... it but does it does it do your user input handling as well? How does this work? So you you have to tell it to do various things, but it manages the state of whether or not you're in you know the modal editing mode or insert mode or whatever. Um, and so you're kind of telling it to transition states with their APIs um, that they've provided to you. So you still have to map the inputs to it, but it deals with all the actual operations for you. So you don't have to deal with things like cursor affinity. Is it supposed to be before or after? Like, is it on the current line? or is it on the next line? That sort of thing of, uh, you know, selection handling, that sort of com- complexity that most people don't even think about because they've never had to implement a uh, an edit control. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to try it out and see uh, if it actually makes implementing a text edit widget like really simple and straightforward. I love the idea that in theory, I don't have to manage my own selection handling. I just get to pass it on to cosmic text and just render the selection based on what it's telling me is currently selected. That sounds amazing to me. I just had 18 more side project ideas while you've been describing this based <laughs> on what this thing seemingly can do, right? This is, that's, that's really interesting. I, I like it. I, I kind of, so, so a, a part of me is very skeptical, right? I'm kind of like thinking, okay, hang on. If, if you're doing <laughs> some sort of like input, hand, but you're not doing input handling, but you're doing, you know, you're creating these events or, or, or states that you send to it, right? Um, mm-hmm. To do things, and yeah, then- it's all based around this idea that it manages the text buffer for you and the various rich text attributes for each of the different you know character offsets inside of that buffer, um, and it's you're telling it like how many like what the visible range is, how it's scrolled, so that when you go to tell it to lay out the widgets for for getting ready to render, it only lays out what's actually visible and everything. Like it, it does a lot of really cool stuff for you out of the box. It seems like it cancels out all the work I've done for the last two years but the other night is pretty good okay you say you said visible and like visible selection right you 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 you've mm-hmm. you've selected a range is that is that can it do that can it select the range i believe so but i don't actually know i i haven't gotten far enough in that the, to understand how the selection works so i know there is some stuff to deal with cursors and selections i haven't figured out how it all works yet because i haven't really played with it much so far i've only been doing the rendering part if this thing can do multiple selections i shall have to purchase a hat okay <laughs> this is very interesting i'm very i'm, I'm very excited about this right because I, I just i have t- so many we, we are okay i can obviously not implement these ideas they're gonna go at the end of my text document where i dump all my side quests right they go right into this document it's the only way that i can stay focused and be productive on one project at a time and that is to write down all the new ideas that i have so I don't forget them, but I don't start implementing them either, right? So by the time I'm finished with this project, I'm going to start the game, but uh, the excess time, which I probably won't have, 
uh, I can just pick one of these side projects and, and continue. I'm going to have plenty of of of, um, of uh, commitment to uh, anathema, of course. We're going to implement. Someone's going to have to implement that table widget, right? So it's going to have to happen. <laughs> um, uh, I, I've done uh, on a side note. What I've done is I've, I've split out my widget types into widget. Uh, and layout. So there is, I've already written a lot of the stuff for doing various layouts that can be sort of composed, right? And I was toying with the idea of having a um, uh, something that takes uh, one or many, the implements layout, and then you can sort of run this over. But of course, it doesn't work. You can't run layout multiple times because you are modifying the constraints as you do that. So chaining layouts didn't work on that level, of course, right? But um, this is probably really hard to uh, to visualize in in in, 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 a, in a podcast setting, right? But um, but yeah, yeah. So okay, you know what? That's that's very cool. I have to I have to look at this thing, right? When it gets to the graphic stuff, because it sounds like if this is fast, um, it sounds like it can be the foundation for so very many things, right? Anything from from uh, I mean, like you could you could basically do a text editor. Seems like it has everything you need to do a text editor. What's the? Uh, th- there you go, right? That seems. I, I I was very tempted to try. Um, <laughs> uh, I think it was a couple days ago. No, I mean one of the one of the thoughts that I had fairly recently is I I go to Google to type in equations to search like for like you know conversions between different um, you know real life measurement types, or you know just to do quick math because the Google search widget just does stuff so well. And there are some really cool tools out there. I'm not going to try to name any of them, but there's a ton of little calculator apps out there. But I realized I don't have any of them bound to a keyboard shortcut, and none of the ones that I am aware of would work exactly the way I want it. So I like this idea of building a little calculator app that's like exactly what I want, um, that me- me- you know uh, uh, matches my mental model of how I want uh, expressions to work um, so that I have something really easy to con- do all these little tiny math operations on. Um, and I was thinking about trying to build that with Kludgen since I had just gotten all the text rendering and everything working and stuff. But I, I, I also put that, uh, <laughs> that project aside. So l- let's try to wrap this up a little bit. At the end of the day, um, I want to, I only really want to focus on GUI if at least multiple other people also agree that it's an interesting thing that needs to get taken further. It may still, we may still decide that some other framework along the way ends up being like better by the time we get to the point that it's usable enough. Right. Um, but you know, if no one else is interested in this and I'm the only one that thinks that this is a good idea, that's telling. Right. Mm. Um, but if, if there's other people out there that are like, yeah, I've tried out various other systems. They don't quite fit what I'm looking for. This looks like it might be able to fit what I'm looking for. Um, that that's promising to me. Right. And it's at least, uh, at least makes it worthwhile to spend a little more time on, but you know, outside of that, I still just want to make a game with you. Right. Like, and so, you know, part of me wants to find excuses not to build this. <laughs> But the thing is, like, you have kind of convinced me that this is now more interesting by mentioning this text. <laughs> so, um, so, so to give you a little bit of background, right? So, one of the one of the thoughts that I've had um, for for quite a long time um, is a visual node based scripting language, which would be very, which would give you this visual <laughs> overview on connecting systems, and this is more about. Uh, being able on the fly 
to have an input that is something like TCP stream of, say, chat messages. And then you can run these through a bunch of transformers and then sort of get the output. So while you're, for instance, as a streamer, I do get a lot of uh, chat messages. So if I wanted to just slot in another node that filters out text messages from, from certain people who are um, rude, or if I want to, if you want to sort of promote certain messages or do whatever, right, uh, I could just sort of put one of these things in there. So building up this kind of filter flow, um, I've had this sort of vision of, our, of about doing this with, with, with this a graphical, in a graphical environment, right? Because it's very easy to get an overview in, in, in there, right? So this sounds like something that you could possibly use um, to, to the, 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 the GUI, right? So, so having that in mind, right? Especially since if we're going to have like a canvas where we can um, draw on that, then I'm guessing we should also be able to have an overflow um, sort of an overflow canvas of widgets, right? With with the possibly absolute position. You know what? I'm I'm definitely going going off on one. <laughs> what's well, I just wanted to comment real quickly though, because uh, what's funny is I have been thinking about um, a very high level language uh, for various reasons as well, <laughs> and part of the inspiration is tying somehow like making user interfaces purely out of this high level language that allows you to tie stuff together at the UI level without having to update your rust code, right? <laughs> like there are some very basic user interface interactions that don't need like that they don't really need to exist outside of the actual view itself. If mm. you want to call it that the, the, the definition of what's actually being displayed, how it's being laid out. Um, sometimes there's just little behaviors like enabling a button that don't really need to like, you just need to know that they've checked the checkbox to enable the button, right? Like there's yeah. no other validations happens. That's the only thing you need to know is that before they click, okay, they have to click that checkbox. That's something that should be able to be set up purely in the UI description without, um, needing to involve Rust if you're able to describe the UI outside of Rust, which in the long-term vision of GUI, I do still believe that there is a uh, a dynamically loadable uh uh, scripting language of sorts that allows you to define uh, styles, themes, whatever you call them, as well as widgets. Uh, so you can have custom widgets that are not written in Rust. They're written in this custom language that, you know, uh, is just a way to combine widgets together, essentially. Um, and then, you know, uh, actual inst instances of widgets, too, uh, where it's like, you know, uh, well, I guess that's kind of the same thing at the end of the day. Um, so anyway, I, I still I see this as a, a vision uh, kind of tying into that. So I'm curious if we're going to end up adding a programming language to our <laughs> list of projects. So. <laughs> so so, anyone who's listening, this must be a little bit of a roller coaster. It's like, oh, are we starting the are game? They, are they going to ever start the game? game? <laughs> yes, like, they're making a programming language now. What the f***? <laughs> right. Um, all right. I think it's it's just... <laughs> It's just <laughs> sorry. Oh, you know what? We're gonna have to we have, we're gonna have to run yeah. this off and, and and wrap this out now because I am literally running out of disk space on my audio interface, uh -oh. right? So uh, with that, I want to say to all of you, thank you for listening. It's wonderful to be back, and I hope you guys keep listening. Yes, welcome back, and thank you everyone. See you guys next week. Bye. Bye.